and to be able to take in truth, to know it, uh, to love it, and to live it apart from your spirit at work in us. And ask that that would be the case this morning. Lord, help us to gain a little clearer and richer understanding of your heart and your character through the text this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, uh, Larry Stewart taught on uh, critical race theory a couple of weeks ago. It's a challenging topic, and he did a great job on it. If you weren't here and didn't hear that, I would certainly recommend it to you. There's a lot going on in our culture uh, contemporarily, a lot of calls going on for one thing or another. Critical race theory is one of them. Uh, social justice is another. Uh, it's, it has its own current and contemporary meaning. Some use the phrase social justice in the way you typically would historically, uh, equal treatment under the law, equal treatment under the law. Especially over the last year, with real and apparent unequal treatment of African Americans by police forces. This, is, this has been the, the cause celeb that's really raised that call, especially in the last year. Do, do all Americans enjoy equal treatment under the law? That's certainly been raised and, and answered in the negative by many. Social justice is what we'll talk about a little bit this morning, but I want to define some terms and then I want to get into the text. Dictionary.com describes social justice, that phrase, not the two separate words, but the phrase as it's used contemporarily this way, fair treatment of all people in a society, including respect for the rights of minorities and equitable distribution of resources among members of a community. It's that last phrase that's loaded. What does equitable distribution of resources look like? What does that include? If you go back to 2006, the United Nations in its social justice in an open world said in part, describing social justice, it may be broadly understood as the fair and compassionate distribution of the fruits of economic growth. This is to say that when social justice is used today as a term, as a descriptive phrase, it may include the call for equal justice under the law, but, but often it's also including this thought of the redistribution of wealth. Investopedia.com describes it this way, and what you'll see in their description, it combines the theme Larry talked about last week, critical race theory, with the call to social justice. They define it this way. Revolves around favoring or punishing different groups of the population, regardless of any individual's choices or actions, based on value judgments regarding historical events, current conditions, and group relations. In economic terms, this often means redistribution of wealth, income, and economic opportunities from and this is where the critical race theory comes in, from groups who social justice advocates consider to be oppressors to those whom they consider to be the oppressed. That's the critical race theory element. So if you hear the term social and justice as individual terms, you may think of certain things that would historically be the norm. If you hear the term social justice today, it carries a lot with it, and it's important to define what we're talking about. Whatever we make of contemporary calls for social justice, 
we need to remind ourselves that justice in society is not a new concept. And it's not one that socialists or social justice warriors have a unique claim to. In fact, often these are Johnny-come-latelys to a, a call for an attitude and an action that God, of course, has been heralding all along and that we should too. This is not this morning a message on social justice per se, but I wanted to bring this up as a lens because the text that will be in this morning in Deuteronomy talk about justice and they talk about going beyond mere justice to mercy. And what you see is God's version of justice as he described his requirements for his covenant people Israel as they were getting ready to go into the land of promise. What did justice look like in God's economy? And beyond mere justice, what did the call to mercy look like as well? Micah 6.8 is, a, is a, a verse, a Bible verse that Christians have used a lot in the last year around the social justice movement. It's an interesting verse. It's a key verse. It's a verse many people know by heart because it puts the faith in so simple a terms. You know, what does the Lord require of you but to do justice or do justly? Love mercy, walk humbly with your God. But even Christians quoting that verse often are doing so with varying, very different assumptions and with very different inferences for sure. So we're in the 14th message in the Mercy Waiting series, Lessons in Deuteronomy, and we're going to look at the ways God commanded social justice among Israel, his chosen people. And then beyond that, what a merciful and loving God wanted for the mutual care in his covenant community. If you remember the setting for Deuteronomy, all of Deuteronomy, Moses is near the end of his life. Israel's poised on the brink, east side of the Jordan River. They're getting ready to go into the land of promise. And Moses is looking back over the previous 40 years. He's reminding them of God's dealings with them, but he's also reminding them of what God's call for them as a nation is going to look like as they go into the land of promise. And one of the things that they will see is that practicing justice and mercy towards each other, and especially the most vulnerable, is what God was commanding for their nation. Let me just uh, define, describe two terms before we get into the text. We'll start in Deuteronomy 1. If you have a Bible, you can certainly turn there now. Justice described or defined in Webster's Dictionary is this, the quality of being just. That's not necessarily helpful, is it? Conformity to the principles of righteousness and rectitude. That's a term we don't often use today, but rectitude means straight. And it has that thought, if you read the book of Proverbs, the righteous path God calls us to walk, it's a straight path. You go straight ahead. That's moral rectitude. If I go right or left, I'm getting off the path God's called me to. That's the thought here. It's morally to go straight ahead. Strict performance of moral obligations. Practical conformity to human or divine law. Integrity in the dealings of men with each other, equity and uprightness. Mercy described, let me describe mercy this way, especially from the Old Testament and the, the passages we'll be looking at. Mercy goes beyond justice. If I claim justice, I'm saying someone owes me something, legally or otherwise. You owe me, there's a debt. Someone owes me something. 
Mercy doesn't say, it's not, a, it's not a legal command, it's not a legal requirement, but someone has a need and mercy is someone else reaching out to meet that need. And that's what you see throughout the Old Testament, especially in the passages we'll look at this morning. And I'm going to give you, sorry, but I'm going to give you a caveat before we get into this. And it's this. In all the calls for social justice and the practice of mercy and getting all this stuff right, how well do you think we're really going to do? With this as a backdrop, you and I live in the same world system that crucified Jesus Christ. It's the most unjust act in the history of the world. And it was Jews and Gentiles. The folks there were meant to represent all of us. Which is to say, the world that we live in is not a just world. And guys, it's not going to be until King Jesus comes back and reigns personally. In fact, I was listening to the scripture on the way here this morning, Ecclesiastes 5. It says, don't be surprised when you see injustice in governmental settings. It's a given. It's a given. And on mercy, guys, you can get mercy right and wrong. And we'll look at that too. You can think you're doing a good thing for someone else and find out it was anything but good for them. So we can get all of this wrong. So as we take this in, as we're thinking about the ways we want to see our society and God's call to us in it, we want to be hard-headed and clear-thinking. We don't want to wear the rose-colored glasses. There's no full preemptive, consistent justice in this world until Jesus rules. It doesn't exist. We aim for it. We aspire to it. We want to practice mercy as those who've received mercy. But guys, in this world, this does not happen. Not across the board until Jesus is ruling. Okay? So, so we temper our expectations with that reality. So, with tempered expectations, Deuteronomy 1, okay, let's start there. Verses 16 through 17, Moses is looking back almost 38 years as he takes this up, and he's looking back to that time in the wilderness when he appointed judges because, you know, somebody would have a complaint against another person in the community, they'd come to Moses, his father-in-law says, man, this doesn't work, you've got to get some help. So he appoints judges, and listen to what he says. He says, I charged your judges, way back in the day, 38 years ago, hear the cases between your brothers and judge righteously, judge righteously between a man and his brother or the alien who is with him. And stop there for just a second. Judge rightly. Give true justice between a man and his brother. This means between one Jew and another Jew. Or, he says, or the alien who is with him. This means between a Jew and a non-Jew. This is a non-Jew living in the covenant community in Israel, but they're not Jewish. Moses commanded equal treatment, right treatment under the law for anyone that was in the covenant community. Everyone there, whether they were ethnically a Jew or not, they were supposed to get right or justice before the judges. Verse 17, you shall not be partial in judgment. You may not be prejudicial towards one party or the other. 
In fact, he goes on to say, you shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall hear the small and the great alike. Friends, this meant you may not give prejudicial treatment to the wealthy. But it also says elsewhere, you may not give prejudicial treatment to the poor. You listen to them equally. Neither one of them, based on their socioeconomic status, has a greater claim on justice. They're all treated the same. You listen to them equally. And then he says this, You shall not be intimidated by anyone, for judgment is God's. You are standing in God's place to render God's judgment. It must be just. It must be right. It must represent what God wants in this, what God calls justice in this. This is like Romans 13, that government entities and agents are ministers of God. That's the same thought here. So Moses tells them, you're not free to come in prejudicially favoring one person or another. You stand in God's place. You must give God's kind of perfect justice. That's the call. If you turn a couple pages to Deuteronomy 10, and again, this is God's description of what justice looked like walked out in a community. Uh, Yahweh, the Lord, Yahweh your God is God of gods. He's Lord of lords, the great and mighty, the awesome God who is not partial, and he takes no bribe. In other words, when you come to God's court for justice, you cannot influence him one way or the other off true justice, off true righteousness. You can't offer God anything that's going to sway his judgment. It's perfect, and it's always perfect. It's unchangeably perfect. Verse 18 says, and this is a description to say how you can know this is true. What does this look like? Well, he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. He says parenthetically, love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt also. You know what this feels like, he says. He executes justice for the fatherless, the widow, and the sojourner, which is to say people who couldn't bribe him if they wanted to get equal justice before God. That's the thought. I'm going to run through just descriptively. I'm not going to read the passages. We don't have time. But I'm going to just give you a, a sense of some of the ways God required justice within the community. Chapter 19, you couldn't accuse someone unless you had at least two or three witnesses. If a false accuser was found out, the punishment that he was trying to get on the other person was to be executed on him. In fact, Lex Talionis is part of that. Passage, an eye for an eye, a foot for a foot, a hand for a hand. Chapter 22, protected wives from a husband's false accusations of immorality. Chapter 23, protected servants and slaves from unjust masters. Chapter 24, regulated how collateral for loans was handled. You can see God spoke to every element of social life about just interaction with each other. Uh, he specifically protected the poor in those transactions. He required day laborers to be paid promptly on the same day. Uh, Deuteronomy 24, 17 says this, You shall not pervert the justice due to the sojourner or to the fatherless or take a widow's garment in pledge. Again, care for the most vulnerable in the community. Chapter 27, verse 19, 
And, and by the way, this is in the context of Israel's affirming the covenant. Remember, they'd said yes to it at the, when the Ten Commandments were given 40 years earlier. But this generation is affirming the covenant, and they do so by reciting the blessings for covenant faithfulness and reciting the curses for a lack of covenant faithfulness. And it was be said, Cursed is anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. And all the people say, Amen. All the people say, yes, that's what we're committed to. We're in for that. God required equal treatment or justice for all and repeatedly warns against perverting justice based on a person standing high or low. Equal justice under the law. Sort of the traditional concept we have. Now, not only did God require in the community justice, equal treatment, real justice, he also required Mercy. This was not optional. So it's not quite the same thing as justice, but in God's economy, he says, not only do I require right judgment when there are opposing claims or someone's in need, but I also require mercy towards the least and the most vulnerable. And specifically what you see him, he calls this out over and over again, orphans, widows, foreigners or sojourners, and Levites, and I want to explain this just a little bit. The fatherless and the widow, you remember Israel is a patriarchal nation. So land gets handed down through the male heirs generally. Now females could inherit, there's provision for that in the law. But generally, if you were a widow or an orphan, you didn't have a husband or a father connected to that extended family, you were without the normal provision that everyone else in Israel would have and could count on. So you were hanging out on your own. In fact, you remember in the story of Ruth, isn't it interesting? Um, Naomi and husband and sons go to Moab because there's a drought in the land. And Naomi loses husband and two sons. And Ruth loses husband. And so in that picture, in that story, you've got two widows coming back into the land of Israel to Bethlehem one of whom's also a sojourner, a foreigner. She's doubly out, if you will, because she occupies two of those roles that occupy the least in Israelite society. And when they come back, it's clear they need help. And how are they going to get help? And of course, it's a lovely story, and I'll let you read that on your own. Sojourners are non-Jews, but they're living in Israel. So Israel is their homeland. That's where they live. They also are not connected through a family line. So they potentially would have less resources than others as well. And then Levites might sound like an anomaly here. Uh, Deuteronomy 18 talks about this. But the Levites, remember, they don't get a tribal inheritance. They don't have a plot of land like everyone else does. They got some cities, and they've got areas of land around those cities, but they could not pass on typically one generation to another, a plot of land and increase their productivity and their income and their wealth over time. And also if they were serving at the tabernacle or later at the temple, the priests and the Levites themselves would be fed at that location by the tithes and offerings, but their family wasn't being provided for. So the Levites uniquely were hanging out in their service to the community, so they potentially would have needs that others might not. 
So mercy through tithes. I've got a lengthy list here because it's, and this is just, by the way, not all of them. I hope you have a study sheet. Mercy, God's mercy required through tithes. This is Deuteronomy 14. You remember a tithe means a tenth, and God required Israel all kinds of giving. The tithe was sort of the basic. There were others as well. But he says this, Deuteronomy 14, 28 and 29, At the end of every three years you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in the same year and lay it up within your towns. Remember when Israel starts, there's no central hub where the temple will, will be built in the future. And so a lot of this you see played out in the local communities, not at a central place of worship. That would come later. The end of three years, so when you tithe on that third year, the tithe, so this would typically be grain, some of it would be money, some of it might be wine or fruit, uh, you lay it up within your towns. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow who are within your towns, they shall come and eat and be filled, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. So notice two things here. One is that tithe on the third year, it would provide for the people who would tend to have less than anyone else, the needy, the disenfranchised. But also that is a qualifier that the Lord your God may bless you. This is kind of a quid pro quo. You remember life under the law required. You be faithful, I'll bless you. Well, here, this means God says, if you don't do this for the least in your culture, I do not give any promise to give you a, a harvest of abundance in the future. You show mercy with the tithe to the least in your community, that I may continue to bless you in your future harvest. If you switch briefly to Deuteronomy 26, this is verses 12 through 14, he says the same thing again, but then he says this in verse 13. After he says, do this with the tithe, bring it into the community, share it with all those folks, he says, then you shall say before the Lord your God, I have removed the sacred portion out of my house, the tithe, what, what was God's due. I have removed it out of my house. Moreover, I have given it to the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, according to all your commandment that you've commanded me. I have not transgressed any of your commandments, nor have I forgotten them. God says, so do this. And then when you've done it, you take an oath and you say, Lord, I did. I really did it. I didn't just pretend. I didn't just say it. I took an oath and I said, yes, Lord, I did exactly what you said. At Deuteronomy 16, you see mercy required in the national feasts of Israel. You remember all the men in Israel were required to go to the tabernacle or later to the temple three times a year. So the nation would get together. And when the nation got together at these national holidays, think of Passover and weeks and uh, tabernacles in the fall, these would be times of great blessing because all these offerings would be made at the temple or the tabernacle. And then part of that, of course, would be consumed by the families who'd made the offerings. So it was a great time. of It'd be like Thanksgiving for us. So the Lord said this, You shall rejoice in the feast, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant. So we're all around the table and we're having the feast and life's grand because it's me and my family. And the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your towns. God says, when you do these things, you bring them in with you. 
You don't just sit there with all this largesse I've given you and you enjoy it with your family and they're out in the cold with nothing. He says, oh no, you bring them into that celebration. They get to be a part of that as well. This will come up, by the way, this theme comes up later in 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, you got mercy in harvests. Uh, Kathy and I were picking service berries just in the last two weeks in our backyard, so I was thinking about this. Do you guys know what service berries are? So they're bushes, shrubs, and they get big purple berries. They look something like a blueberry. They're, in fact, they're about the same size. And uh, we got these so that the birds would eat the berries and we would enjoy the shade. And they're lovely plants. But we found out, you know, these make pretty good jam or jelly. So we pick them. If the birds leave us enough, we pick them. And so if you guys want, when you read this text, you can come into our backyard and you can pick what we left, okay? And you'll see what I mean right here. So this was the requirement there. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf, so you're going along with your sickle, and a head of grain falls to the ground, or parts of that head of grain fall to the ground, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. This is the story of Ruth again. You remember when Naomi and Ruth come back into Israel, it's the time for harvest. And so she goes into a field, Naomi knows we have the right to follow the reapers. And you can pick up whatever grain is left behind them. And that's exactly what they did. Verse 20, so that's a harvest, that's grain in the field. Verse 20, when you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterward. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. You know, typically you'd wait till the fruit on that tree or that vine was primarily ripe and ready to come off. And so with the olive trees, they'd beat them and shake them, and they'd put sheets underneath and collect the olives. Well, all of them don't fall off. The landowners were not supposed to go back and try to get those stubborn or not quite ripe olives or grapes off the vine. God required them to leave them there because these otherwise disenfranchised groups could go up and they could do their mini harvest after the main harvest had occurred. See, in Deuteronomy 23, by the way, this is what you see Jesus do in the gospel. You could walk through your neighbor's grain or grapes, and you could eat to your heart's content. You couldn't harvest. So assume that it's near harvest, but harvest hasn't occurred yet. It's near harvest, the grapes are ripe. You could go into your neighbor's grapes, the vineyard, and you could eat as many grapes as you wanted. You could satisfy yourself. And of course, this would be most meaningful if you were one of the orphans or the widows or the sojourners or the Levites who otherwise didn't have much. You could go in, you could have your breakfast in their field. You couldn't take it out. The thought was, here's this abundance in the land. You can go in and you can meet your need for the moment, but you may not take what otherwise take out what your neighbor has worked to provide. You see, mercy in finance, no interest loans, of course, to fellow Jews. There was forgiveness of debts every seven years. This is a little different. Uh, you guys are probably familiar with the year of Jubilee, the 50th year. All debts uh, were relieved in Israel, and land that had been sold to someone not in the family line was returned to its ancestral line again. Deuteronomy says every seventh year, financial loans were, be, were to be forgiven every seventh year. 
Uh, in fact, it said, if you know your neighbor's in need or your brother's in need, and he comes up and he asks for some help, and you know it's the sixth year, and if I give him this loan, next year's the seventh year, he's not going to pay me back. I'm going to be out. The text requires, it says, you may not harden your heart against your brother. You still give him the loan because you can. Uh, Deuteronomy 23 and 24 I love because they required, they regulated respectful interaction regarding collateral. If I'm giving you a loan, you're poor and I'm wealthy, it said, I may not go into your house to collect collateral. I respected that your house was your home and you would bring your collateral out. Or it, it said you can't take a millstone so that someone couldn't continue to grind their, their meal. It said you couldn't take a widow's uh, cloak because she needs it at night. It regulated all of this because God was merciful and not just just. And what you see, the horizontal commands throughout Deuteronomy on this, they really have to do with particular care for the most vulnerable in the society and in the culture. And what you find is that the law of Moses codified social justice 3,500 years ago. None of this is new. This was true for God's covenant people. Guys, if you go through the prophets, there's quite a bit I probably won't get to this morning just for time's sake. I will just refer uh, some texts there on your study sheet to Isaiah. Uh, the Jewish prophets, condemnation of unequal treatment under the law or a lack of mercy in Israel, that condemnation is second in the prophets only to idolatry. In other words, if you read through the Old Testament prophets, you'll see this. The prevalent complaint God makes against the Jews is the failure to love God. The second complaint or indictment he has against his covenant people is failure to love their fellow Jews. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor. Jesus says that's the law and that's the prophets. So those are the two things you see represented in the prophets as well. God's call for justice and mercy didn't end in the Old Testament, of course. You get to uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus memorably, Matthew 7 verse 12, says this, when when God, the God of Sinai, shows up in flesh, in person, he speaks the same things that he'd spoken on Sinai 1,500 years earlier. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. This is the law and the prophets, Matthew 7, verse 12. When you get to the New Testament too, if you look for codes on justice broadly, the way you see in Deuteronomy or the Old Testament, you won't find them. You won't find them. And it's not because God's less concerned for justice in the New Testament. But remember, Israel is a theocracy. And the king and the priesthood represent not just a spiritual life, but civil life. So God commanded justice through the civil authorities who were also appointed by God. But what does the age of the church look like? You get to the church age in the epistles, the church is not ruling nations. You certainly have appeals for justice within the church, but the church is never commanded to dispense justice through a society because the church isn't in control. The church doesn't run the nations. You know, so you get to Romans 13, 
It's civil magistrates. It's, it's non-Christians. It's people that aren't in God's household that are the civil authorities that you're appealing to for justice. But it's not the church. So you will see things. Think of James 5. James 5 sounds like it's straight out of the Old Testament. Those day laborers, you're, you're supposed to pay them. They worked for you through the day. You've held on to their money. Maybe you're getting interest for it. He says you pay them when it's due at the end of the day. You see calls for justice along that line, but you don't see the same kinds of codes because the church wasn't in charge of that kind of authority and generally isn't, of course, today either. By the way, when the church is in charge culturally, you go back to the Reformation era, it's usually not a pretty thing. It's usually historically it has not been a good thing. If you look for mercy in the epistles and in the New Testament, you see it everywhere. So we're still meant to do justice within the frames of reference we can, but most of us don't have civil authority to engender justice more broadly. But we are called to mercy. The first aspect of that you see in Acts is at the end of chapter 5 and then into chapter 6. You know, at the, the Feast of Weeks, all these Jews had come into Israel from all over the Roman world. And the Holy Spirit was given and they hear Christ proclaimed and they believe. And they stick around and they run out of money. And a lot of those that did so were widows. And so the early church takes up to feeding these widows. That was immediate. And I'm sure they didn't think long about this. That's exactly what the law required. And at that point, in their minds, we are just law-observing Jews doing what we're supposed to do. That's the early days of the church. I should mention, too, uh, Kathy and I, when we got married, I moved back here. I had no, no money. My grandmother asked my future bride, she said, why are you marrying him? He doesn't even have a job. I came back. I was unemployed. Uh, Kath moved back to Topeka. I moved back to Topeka. We got married. And I was employed after that all along. Uh, but I wasn't making much money. And guys, we were in a church that took all this seriously. And seriously, I cannot tell you how many times we were on the receiving end of anonymous or otherwise financial gifts. We were given cars. We were basically shoehorned into our first house by another couple in the church. We were given electric panels on our house. We were given checks. We, we put a down payment on a house once, earnest money, put earnest money on this house. And I'm thinking, man, what am I doing? This is not, this is not where my family needs to be. And I was lamenting this to a brother in the church. He said, Mike, don't worry about it. God's got this. So we walked away. We lost our earnest money. And that brother wrote me a check for the amount of the earnest money, which enabled us, of course, to put it down on the house that we ended up buying. But we saw this over and over again. When I told my family this, my dad had the same response over and over. He said, I've never heard of a church like this before. Because, guys... The church broadly isn't necessarily good at justice or mercy, but we're called to be. And it was a great testimony to, to people who, who believed in God, but didn't know what that call looked like and what it looked like walked out. 1 Timothy 5 talked about Paul to Timothy, how to provide for widows and, and who to call a widow in need of church support and who not to. And, and by the way, the first line of defense for them was not the church. It was their own family. 
1 Corinthians 11, I will digress briefly on this because I think it's so important. You remember in the law at the national feasts, you bring in the widow, the sojourner, the orphan, and the Levite. You bring them in. They're provided for. When the nation celebrates before God, you bring those folks in so that they're part of that celebration. Well, 1 Corinthians 11 Paul indicts the church at Corinth, and he says, this is the deal. Ostensibly, you're getting together as a church to celebrate the Lord's Supper, to take communion, to remember Jesus in his death and resurrection. But he says, while you're doing this, some of you are feasting. Some of you have so much you're feasting. Others of you are getting drunk at the Lord's Supper, while others are there that have nothing. They've got nothing, and you're not sharing with them. And that's the setting in which Paul says, for God, it's because of this, some of you are sick by God's hand, and some of you have died by God's hand because of the way you've disrespected God and his other children at this celebration of Jesus' death and resurrection for you. That's telling. That's not on that for a while. You don't see God doing that in other areas, the immorality even, but you do for the failure to show mercy to their neighbors. If you look at 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, guys, all the passages in the New Testament epistles that deal with collections have to do with taking money from Gentile churches and supporting Jews in and around Jerusalem who were hard-pressed in the moment. This wasn't pastors and buildings. This was just to take care of fellow Christians who had a need at the moment. I'm going to skip over to the next section. You've got some more references on there just for time's sake. Uh, Many in the church and many outside the church criticize the church today for not having this kind of social justice and social mercy role in the larger culture. I'll bet you've heard these complaints too. The church isn't doing what it used to do. I want to look at this two ways. The first is this. When you read these commands in both the Old Testament and the New, primarily and almost without exception, the commands were to be exercised within the covenant community within Israel and within the church. So if we want to be critical about the church not playing the key role, the place to start is our own homes, it's our own families. It's am I within my extended relationships, am I exercising justice towards those I'm in relationship with and mercy. So don't worry about the world until we've looked in our own backyard. That's the thought. That's first and foremost. And that does include the church. Absolutely includes the church. Then we can start looking more broadly at the world. Charity, justice, and mercy always begin at home. The second is this. If you look historically, and just stick with the United States for a moment because it's easy as an example. If you look back through history at this country, Just ask yourself, who started the schools, who started the colleges, who started the seminaries, who started the hospitals, who started the orphanages, who started the soup kitchens, 
who put the, the orphan train together. Guys, it was always the church. It was always the church. Almost without exception. That is the history of the church in the West. And, and by the way, see, I think this goes above and beyond the direct commandments in the New Testament. The church wanted to be salt and light into the broader community. So the church extended these works of mercy to the broader community. But if you read them in context, they're always given in the context of the church. And the church says, we want to do more than that. We want to impact our culture, our society for Christ through his mercy. And so that is our history. That is the history of the church until very recent times. And by the way, in Topeka, you got a couple great examples of this. The Topeka Rescue Mission, which, guys, as far as rescue missions go, it's as good as it gets. The Topeka Rescue Mission is as good as it gets. That was started in, I think it was 1953, by three Christian men who said, you know, we want to do something for the homeless men in Topeka, and we just want to give them a bed to sleep in and a hot meal. And that's how the rescue mission started, so 60, 70 years ago. Uh, he, I didn't ask his permission, but Stephen Jelinek has a very similar message and ministry. Stephen feeds the homeless here in Topeka regularly with eggs. He harvests on his own little back 40 and shares the gospel and disciples those guys with the hope that among that homeless group, others will take the same message of the gospel to other homeless areas as well. That's the kind of ministry the church has had, has been typical of. Lifeline Health Services here in Topeka uh, for women and their babies is another great one. So the church has done that. So if we say, if we look around now and we say, we're not doing much of that anymore. What's going on? So little history lesson. This, this went on. Lots of things changed in the 1900s. So when the Depression comes along and then World War II, what happens? So there's an acute need, absolutely acute need. And so the government steps up and says, we'll handle that. And so under FDR, President Roosevelt, we institute programs meant to meet the needs of those acute moments, uh, World War II and before it in the Depression. And you know what you do with a good government program? You keep them going, whether they're needed or not. This all started then. But you get to the early 1960s, 1963, President Johnson and this nation passed the Great Society legislation. Think and put this in perspective. President Johnson said, he said, we will end poverty in our time, in our day. That's what he said. Now think of that down on one side. And what did Jesus say? The poor you will always have with you. Who do you think comes out right on that? Look back. I don't know. It didn't take me long to think about that. You know, sometimes this is altruistic, and sometimes, frankly, it's just self-serving. And if you get into the other side of the motivation for that legislation, it was not altruistic. And that, that instituted the welfare society that we know of today, and it has been devastating in this country. Because, guys, all mercy is not equal. And this is where I want to recommend two books, When Helping Hurts, published in 2009, and Toxic Charity. These should be on your study sheet. These are written by people who have been long invested in, in works of mercy. So they've seen the attempts at mercy. And what you find is this. If you're not really hard-headed, 
If you're not prayed up and if you're not discerning, if you don't take your rose-colored glasses off and you try and help people, you'll hurt them. You won't help them. You'll feel good. You'll feel better. But it doesn't matter that they've been helped at all. And that's what you see in the welfare nation that we have today. It has been devastating to this country and those in it. And that's often what happens. So we've got to be very careful. When we're, we're wanting to be merciful, we're wanting to do those things of charity that God calls us to, you have to be very hard-headed. In this culture, when government throws money at everyone, if you just throw money at people, is that really helpful? Oftentimes it's not. Well, I need to wind down. God has been in the social justice business all along before social justice was a thing. Ultimately, God defines true justice, and Jesus is the real social justice warrior. We need to remember this, too. We are on the receiving side of God's mercy. How is that possible? How is it possible for God to dispense his mercy to us? Because a God who can do only justice, if he looks at you and me and he sees sin, and he does... How do we get to mercy from justice? And, you know, of course, the answer to that is the only reason we're on the receiving end of God's mercy is because Jesus paid the just demands of God's righteous wrath on Christ as our substitute. We want to temper our own perhaps prejudicial concepts of justice, 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 with the reminder that if we received merely justice, we would be condemned rightly in hell forever. So we want to remember, not only in our calls for justice, but as we think about God, his justice, and the mercy we receive, it's only possible because Christ has absorbed in himself God's judgment for our sin. Now we get rivers of mercy and grace, but it's only because justice was fully, fully satisfied. And friends, it bears repeating, if God would not spare his own son in the cause of justice, do you think he'll really spare anyone that rejects Jesus Christ as the solution for their sin? It's not going to happen. If, if he didn't spare his son... He's not going to spare anyone else if they reject the offer of eternal life God gives in Christ. So we're going to start with justice and mercy in our own homes and our own backyards. You know, in heaven, there's no need for you to be just or merciful. It's not needed because it's all perfect when we get there, right? No need. This is the time to do justice and to love mercy and to be agents of mercy in Christ's name and in Christ's cause for others. And we want to do so with this expectancy, with this reminder that it's only when the kingdoms of this world, Revelation 11, become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ that real pervasive justice will be present on the earth. Now we aspire to it and mercy and we can work at it and there's ways in which it'll be different for all of us, no doubt. But we, we do so realizing until Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords ruling over this earth, you will not see pervasive justice and mercy 
as God counts perfection, you will not see it on the earth. And that's just another reason, guys, to look with expectation and to say at the end of each day, come Lord Jesus. That's what we're waiting for. If you would, rise with me. We're going to read together from Luke 4, verses 18 and 19. This, uh, Jesus read this passage from Isaiah 61. It's a messianic passage. It applied directly to him. But because the spirit of Jesus is in the church today and the works that Jesus began in the gospel continue today, especially in the proclamation of the gospel, read this and just think about the ways in which this might apply to you and I. We're not Jesus, but we have his spirit. His spirit's in the church and we're still called to be Jesus representatives in the earth. Let's read this together. The spirit of the Lord is upon